<clears throat> Moses gave us the Ten Commandments of God. Do you got me, Rebecca? And uh, we saw an incredible picture of the holiness of God there. And now as the Word of God has expounded upon the Ten Commandments, we've seen um, <clears throat> more detail in regard to these specific laws. And uh, I will warn you <laughs> from the outset, there's a couple of things in this particular section that um, are ancient practices that were uh, abominable. So I'm just giving the warning for young years that uh, we do have a couple things at the outset that you might want to... I'll leave it up to you. <laughs> Father God, thank you so much <clears throat> for the beauty of who you are, for the richness of your word, for your great glory and holiness. Tonight, Lord, as we look upon your holiness, um, you say you are to be holy for I am holy. And Lord, um, we know that we're a work in progress when it comes to holiness. But when we sense the sweetness of your presence, when we feel that overflowing of the Holy Spirit, when we see what it means to be close to the God who made us and everything, it is such a beautiful thing. There is nothing like it in all the world. And Lord, our future is going to be that very thing where we will shed this sinful nature by your grace, where we will um, experience a place where there will be no more death, sorrow, suffering, or pain. The former uh, order of things would have passed away. This is a foretaste, Lord. And as we look at these things, um, we also see the flip side, which is a culture that is unholy, a culture that is on a slippery slope to destruction and to judgment. And God, that's where our heart hurts. I know when Noah was building the ark, Second Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. And yet I <clears throat> would imagine his heart was broken as he saw what you saw, that the thoughts and intents of the hearts of man was continually wicked seemingly without a break from his wicked thoughts. Lord, we don't want to be that way. And we need you so desperately to transform our minds, to renew our minds, to cleanse us and wash us from this world that can so quickly soil us. So tonight, God, as we look at some hard things in the book of Exodus, we pray that you'll guide our steps, give us clear thinking, guide us by the Spirit of God, and help us to divide the Word of God accurately to be workmen who do not need to be ashamed who rightly divide the Word of Truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 22. Uh, summing up uh, what we talked about last week, God dealt with uh, witchcraft. Uh, you shall not allow a sorceress to live. Now, we don't have any record of a witch being put to death in the Bible that I can remember, although we did look at the account when Saul went to the witch at Endor, and we saw how badly that ended for Saul, um, because he ended up dying, you remember, him and his sons the next day. 
And so that was a radical thing. I was listening to a program today that tells us that 17,000 internet sites are now available for those wanting to get involved in witchcraft. And there is a boom among teen girls in wanting to get involved in the occult and witchcraft, largely because of the media attention from the Harry Potter books and movies, from the uh, programs like Charmed and so forth that have become very mainstream when it comes to the occult. But I want you to notice Exodus twenty two eighteen. God has a very dim view on the world of the occult. He says, don't allow a sorceress to live. I mean, that's about as radical and sobering as it gets. But it gets a little more sobering because in the next verse it says, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. The NIV reads, anyone who has sexual relations with an animal must be put to death. Now in the um, Canaanite culture, uh, doing a little research on this, It was apparently a regular practice to be involved in bestiality in these particular cultures. It was commonplace. Um, Hold your finger in Exodus 22 and turn to Leviticus 18. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And Alan, would you do me a favor and close that back door so we don't get the traffic noise? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And you want Leviticus 18, verse 23. <clears throat> he says, Also you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. This is Leviticus eighteen twenty-four. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. Now you know one of the major reasons why God cleaned out the land of Canaan and gave it to Israel. Because the people who were involved in pagan practices, things that uh, developed in terms of Baal worship and other false gods, these directly tie to um, things having to do with idolatry became so defiled that they degraded to the point where they were doing things that were unthinkable. And this is what God says. The nations have become defiled by these things, 25, and the land has become defiled. Notice. Therefore I have visited its punishment upon it so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, now he's, he's dealing with his people Israel. You are to keep my statutes and my judgments and, now sh- and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled so that the land may not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Now there is a direct tie between a culture that becomes idolatrous and a culture that becomes sexually degraded. The two are interlinked. And in cult religions, many of the cult religions had gods and goddesses which they believed controlled fertility. 
And that was the abundance of crops, the abundance of livestock, the health of livestock and crops. And so they thought that one of the ways to appease these gods and get blessings was to uh, get involved in these abominable practices. And some of them went to the degree, believe it or not, where they would, for the sake of fertility blessings, sacrifice their children to these false gods. And there was a god in ancient times named Molech, and we're told from um, ancient sources about this god that they would literally heat up this god to the point where it was uh, fiery hot, and they would lay live babies on this god and burn them alive. And they thought in doing that, they would somehow glean the blessings of these fertility gods. And they thought that in, if they were involved in degraded, abominable sexual practices, that in doing so, that somehow would appease the gods, uh, even some believe inspire the gods, if you know what I mean, uh, to give them blessings back. And so this is where this cultic type worship came. So if you go back to Exodus, sometimes you wonder, you know, when Joshua is going into Canaan and God says, wipe out everything, don't leave anything alive. You go, whoa, wait a minute, God, that seems very radical until you understand the depths of sin that were in these cultures. Now, we see America today on a very slippery slope, don't we? Because we're a nation divided when it comes to morality. As a matter of fact, on most of the major university campuses, if you take a camera and a microphone and ask young people what their idea of morality is, they will tell you almost to a person that morality is determined by your own personal choice. They do not believe in universities that there is any objective standard. It's all in your own decision-making. It's all in the eye of the beholder. Truth is now what we call subjective. It's whatever feels good to me, whatever I think is right. So if you tell somebody, uh, do you believe that Christianity is true? They will say to you, well, uh, I think the Bible has nice stories in it. But do you believe it's true? And they'll say, well, uh, I, I think it's beneficial to mankind. But do you believe it's true? No, not in a literal sense. So you, you don't believe it's true. That means you believe it's wrong, right? And they can't say that word, something's wrong. They're like Fonzie back in Happy Days. I was, he can't get it out. And they can't get it out either because by calling something wrong, you are making an objective moral judgment. And we live in a world that is relativistic now where kids are trained in universities and even high schools that there is no objective standard, that you are the determiner of what is true and not true. And you'll hear phrases and you got to know these. Well, if that's true for you, then it must be true. And that is bogus. You could say, I don't believe the law of gravity exists and do a swan dive off the Empire State Building. But the law of gravity doesn't care what you believe about it. It is a fixed law and you are going to die. And this is what's happened in our society. People say, I don't believe there's a hell. Who cares what you believe? You could deny it all day long. The, there's the old story of the Christian scientists. See, many of the Christian scientists believe that the whole world's an illusion. If you ever want to test their theory, ask them to step in front of a Mack truck and see if that's an illusion. But anyway, the story is about the Christian scientist who ends up in hell, and he's in a corner going like this, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here. 
He can say that throughout eternity, but He's there. And you could say, well, hell is irrelevant for me because I don't believe it exists. And God's going to say to you, your belief's irrelevant because I made hell and it does exist. And so ultimately, this is what we have in our society. We have a slippery slope. And the slippery slope moves from a conservative uh, society built upon Christian foundation to a society that begins to um, basically become a melting pot of, of various people, groups, and religions, which, you know, that's, that can be a good thing because we would want to influence those people. But then ultimately, those influences come in on the culture, and the culture no longer wants to say that we're a Christian nation, and the, and the culture no longer uh, says that we can pray in school and we can uh, make the Bible a textbook or whatever, and we go down a slippery slope, and then we can't say that homosexuality is wrong because that is making a moral judgment, and we continue down a slippery slope. But where does the slope end? If we allow the next thing to happen, which is, okay, now there's homosexual marriage, then what's the next thing? What if some guy says to you that I was born uh, this way, uh, I was born, uh, God made me this way that I should have 14 wives? What if a guy says, uh, I want to live with two wives, two guys, and two cats, and two dogs? Where does it end? See, it becomes a slippery slope because there is no moral objective anyway, anymore. There is no moral compass. There is no place that someone can go to and say, but this says this. They say that's irrelevant because that's only true for you. You see? And so now what we have is Pandora's box opened and there's no place that this stops except what man determines. And what man determines... Well, you know what that's done for us over the centuries, don't you? Exodus 22, look at verse 20. He who sacrifices to any god, verse 20, other than the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. Now, I mentioned to you that um, idolatry is directly connected to some of the abominable practices that we just read about. Would you turn to Romans 1 for a second? Romans chapter 1. And I want to show you this slippery slope in black and white. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and Romans. Romans chapter 1. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, verse 19, Romans 1. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been kind of seen? No. What does it say in your Bible? Clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, creation, so that they are, well, they might have an excuse on Judgment Day. No, they are without excuse. 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, that means empty, and their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. By the way, what do we call that? What's the word? Idolatry, 24. Therefore, now this is why God is about to do what He's going to do. Because this is all true, what I just read. Therefore, God gave them over to what they were already doing in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, second time, this phrase is there, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. 27. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, third time you'll see this phrase, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now I could read the rest of that, but you guys get the point, don't you? When you start on the slippery slope of idolatry, what does it lead into according to the flow of this context? Abominable practices. Correct? Now, do we see that today? Is there a link between, go back to Exodus 22, bad behavior and a defiance towards the God of the Bible? Yes? What have we been talking about in terms of Exodus and the Ten Commandments and what God says about those who are His. What did He want from Israel? He said, I am holy, so you be holy. The reason I'm kicking them out of Canaan is not because you're so great, not because you have huge numbers, but because they have an abominable lifestyle and it stinks to high heaven and I'm kicking them out of the land and because I chose you out of my grace. And I think this is, this is what's going on in the book of Exodus. And this is what's going on for the people of Israel. But what happened to Israel? Israel saw what God did. As a matter of fact, these practices were happening in Egypt where they were slaves. They saw it firsthand. But what did they do? They were in the wilderness just a short time. Moses goes up to get the law. And what did they start doing? Making a calf. Dancing around that thing and doing abominable things. You see, we would think that the people would learn after all the miracles and seeing God on the holy mountain and so forth. But unfortunately, they didn't. And here's, here's some application tonight. In the New Testament letters, when Paul writes Romans, Ephesians, and others, he starts with doctrine. What he does is he builds the case of the gospel. He says, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus did for you. If you're in Christ, this is who you are. All by grace. Celebrate the grace. And he'll give you all this beautiful doctrine, right? And you'll see the gospel. It's by the grace of God. It's for the glory of God. He saved a sinful man like me. It's amazing. It's awesome. 
and you see that you didn't do anything to earn it and that you're in Christ, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then Paul will give you, after he builds this big case, he'll say, therefore. And when you see that word, therefore, you got to park for a second and go, what is it? Therefore. And the reason it's there is to show you who you are so that you know, now know how to behave in light of who you are. See, it's never the reverse. Paul doesn't say, act this way so that you can get saved. He says, act this way because you are saved. That's what we have to understand as Christians because we don't want to confuse the Old Testament commands and say, boy, if I don't act this way all the time, then I'm done. Then I'm, I'm on my way to judgment. No, you're not. Because your sins were judged where? At the cross. But holy conduct follows a correct understanding of the gospel and it is the overflow of a saved life. Not because I'm trying to earn my salvation, but because I am expressing gratitude to God because I am saved. And here's the other part. We have to acknowledge that we're still a work in progress, right? That as much as I desire to be holy, it's only by the power and grace of God that I can be holy. It's only as I surrender my life to Him. And it is true, I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm going to be consistent. I'm not going to be sinless, but I will sin less. So we always have to get that understanding. We always move from doctrine, this is who you are in Christ, to then our duty in response to the glorious gospel. We move, we move from the wealth of the believer. This is everything that you possess in Jesus. You're a co-heir with Christ by grace, by grace, by grace to the walk of the believer. From wealth to walk. Doctrine to duty. This is the way the New Testament believer responds to the grace of God. We say, thank you, Lord. You are an amazing God to save somebody like me. Now I want to bring you glory in the way I live. I want to conduct myself in a manner worthy of the calling with which I've been called. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.1. He says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In Romans 12, he says, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, Romans 1-11 through 11 tells you all about the mercies of God. What does he say? Present yourself as living sacrifices. Be holy, be pleasing, be what? Be holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable service in view of the mercy of God. Don't be conformed to this world because you were saved out of it, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll prove what the perfect, acceptable will of God is. See, this is what it's about. And these laws, remember, were intended to drive us to Jesus Christ but they, these laws also reflect the conduct of a person who is saved. If a person is saved, it is hard to understand how they can consistently be involved in an abominable action as we have just read. Are you with me? In other words, if a, let's move out of the realm of the physical for a second and go, move to the spiritual. Can you imagine a Christian making sacrifices to false gods? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a Christian having a Buddha uh, little uh, thing set up where they're lighting a candle and, and doing things, uh, gyrations or worship to Buddha? Could you imagine that? Could you imagine them staring at their belly button for an hour 
trying to get in touch with their own divinity? That doesn't make sense, does it? You see, there's a, there's a response to who a Christian is. Holiness is the outgrowth of what God started in here. You with me? It's not a legalistic trip, but it is a reflection of who we belong to. What happened to Israel? Well, Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. But they got into the Gentile lands, and you know what happened to them? The Gentiles started to influence them rather than them influencing the Gentiles. It happened to Solomon, who, whose heart was turned away from Yahweh by his wives and their false gods. And he did it largely to appease them. But then his heart was turned away. And Solomon was the wisest man who ever walked this planet except for Jesus Christ. So if Solomon can fall, we know we better be sober, right? We know we better watch over our own hearts with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. We say we can handle it. Ah, you know what? I know Jehovah. I know this God. So you know what? I can, I can compromise a little over here, maybe Solomon thought. I can appease her. I can do this. Uh, it'll help me politically. But all of a sudden, you start to make small compromises and you start down the slippery slope and you think you're going to be pulling others up and what's happening is you're going down with them. And sometimes, and I would argue most times, it's a slow process. It's not all of a sudden, you know, you walk in the proverbial ditch and you're, ah! It's not like that. It's one incremental step at a time where then you find yourself somewhere where you're compromising and you go, wait a minute, what? How did I get here? And then go back and retrace your steps and you can find that. And so here's what God is saying. He's saying, look, if you sacrifice to any God other than the Lord alone, you're going to be utterly destroyed. Now notice, we're going to get into some conduct now. 21, Exodus 22. And you shall not wrong or mistreat a stranger or an alien or oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Speaking now to our conduct. conduct. You shall not afflict or take advantage of any widow or orphan. God has reserved a special place in his heart for widows and orphans. Can you imagine someone claiming to be a believer and somehow taking advantage of a widow or an orphan? I can tell you that there are certain preachers on television who are going to answer to God for ripping off widows' welfare checks by making false promises and saying, if you sow your seed to this ministry, then you're going to get this. One night we were doing a radio program. Lovely old man called in. And he said, I'm confused. You guys have been talking about these false teachers on the radio. And he says, I've been giving money to this particular teacher on television. So one of the pastors on the panel said, how much have you given him? He says, $4,000. $4,000. Pastor said, I have a question for you. Did one of the promises that he said to you were going to come to pass because of the money you gave come to pass? The old man said, not one of them. And we found out later that this man did not have a lot of money to live on, but he had given this TV preacher $4,000. Not, not that it's bad to give money, but, but with the understanding, with the hook in it, that this is what you're going to get. It's like, you know, you turn on the television. We got the miracle spring water. Have you seen this one? 
The miracle spring water, and it comes straight from the Sea of Galilee. This guy sounds like he's from Kentucky, but he's talking about the Sea of Galilee, right? <laughs> this spring water straight, you know, who knows where the spring water's from? Well, the guy's bringing in gobs of money, but the guy who's on the television program, what a lot of people don't know, is that years ago he was exposed because he had an earpiece in his ear and his wife was feeding him information about people in the crowd. She, When people were coming into the uh, arena where he was speaking, she was getting personal information from them. Oh, this is your name and address. And she would see what kind of color dress they had on. And then he had an earpiece in. And then he'd be walking around in a group of chairs like this, and he said, there's a woman in a red dress. Said, there's a lady in a red dress to your left, and her name is Marge. Her name is Marge! And Marge is... <gasps> and she found out some personal information about Marge that maybe she has a stomach problem or whatever. you got a stomach problem! God's going to heal! Right? And here's what ends up happening. And God says, if you are my people... My holy people, and you take advantage of a widow or an orphan, I got news for you. You are in deep trouble. James one twenty seven. You might want to write it down. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. By the way, if if a Bible verse says that something is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father, do you know do you want to know what it is? To take care of orphans and widows in their distress, right? James one twenty seven. But but the question was this: If the Bible says that something is pure and undefiled worship or religion before God, do you want to know what it is? Of course you do, right? There's a verse that says that God loves something. You want to know what that is? He loves a cheerful giver. Whatever God loves, that's what I want to be, right? Well, pure and undefiled religion, according to James one twenty seven is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself, would you note it, unstained by the world. What is pure and undefiled religion according to God? James one twenty seven. Look at the verse. This is it. It is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Very simple. But this is what God says is pure before Him. It's not the perfect sacrifice of an animal at this time of day. It has to do with what? Our conduct. Our character. And God, and interesting words here. To go and take care of an orphan or widow in her distress means one who is in flipsis, is the Greek word, one who is under pressure. And the idea of visiting them is not you stop by and say, Hi! The idea of visiting them, the word means carries the idea of caring for others, exercising oversight on their behalf, and helping them in whatever way is needed. The root word is episkopos, which means an overseer of the church. So we're to oversee them in their distress. And literally the word means in their pressure. This Greek word was used of a person who in ancient times was actually uh, put under capital punishment by them laying on a, a large stone on their chest. And they would sit there under the pressure of the large stone until they died. That's the Greek word thlipsis, which Jesus tra- uh, said is tribulation. But in this case, it means a widow or orphan under pressure of life. And what does God say is pure and undefiled? That we come into that mix and we don't say, be warm, be filled, I'll pray for you. But we actually come and we lift the rock ourselves 
and perhaps with others because it can get heavy, right? And we say, I'm here. I'm going to help you. I'm going to try to lift some of that. That's what the church is about. How many times do you see one another commands in the New Testament, love one another, serve one another? And, And this is lived out among you guys, which is awesome. I don't have to create a program for you to take care of one another. It flows from your relationship with God. Amen? The reason I pick up the phone and call somebody who just lost a loved one is is because I care. It's not because it's the easiest situation because that rock is heavy. And if I get under that rock too, that's heavy for me. But you know what? I'm under that rock because Jesus Christ took the, the fall for me. And he says, that's my son. And to the degree that you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, what? You did it to me. And Jesus starts to say, now, what we do in this life counts for eternity. There's a reward system coming to those who serve the Lord. Now, we don't do it for the sake just of the reward. But it's not a bad deal to do something by God's power, for God's glory, and to get a reward. 1 John 3.14, John says, We know, listen to it, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers of the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. See, Christianity is very practical. Remember, I told you we're moving from doctrine to what? To duty. There's a duty that goes along with the salvation we possess. It is not just about an hour and 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. That is not what being a Christian is all about. That's a small part of it. Christianity is a new life in a new community for the glory of God. That's what this is about. It's everything we do. It's how we live. It's what we say. Not, again, not perfect, but for the glory of God and by the grace of God. If you afflict him at all, verse 23, and if he does cry out to me, Here's what God says now. If you afflict the orphan and widow, I know you've got to get back there. I will surely hear his cry. And my anger will be kindled and I will kill you. <laughs> How do you like that? With a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Okay, you mess with the widow and the orphan. Here's what you got. God says you can take this one to the bank. You mess with widows and orphans. I'm going to make your wife a widow and I'm going to make your kids orphans because I'm going to send in besieging armies and they're going to kill your men and then your wives are going to be widows and your kids are going to be orphans. Why? Because you messed with my people. Amen? Now this is God. By the way, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now it's a good thing that we live under the new covenant. Right? Amen, that we do that. But... You know what? When we see people, oftentimes in the name of God, ripping off others, I take that very, very seriously, folks. Because I believe I'm going to stand before this God who wrote this book and and gave these commands. 
Now he says, if you lend money to my people, verse 25, to the poor among you, God has a special place in his heart for the poor as well, the poor as well excuse me. You are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. God says, look, if you want to lend to the, the poor, that's great. Charging interest was allowable according to the Old Testament, but not in an exorbitant fashion. And in a, a poor person's case, he says, just lend it to him and don't charge him interest. You're a part of my community. Love one another. It's not about you. It's not about you expecting something back. If there's a reasonable interest to be paid for someone who's in a reasonable position to pay it, God says, great. But if there's a poor person whom you lend money to to get them by, we've done this oftentimes as a church. We know the person personally. We know they're genuinely in a tough time. They're not just, you know, uh, resting on their laurels, as it were, and not working. They're in a tough time. We've given money to pay rent or electric bills. And we said, look, take it. It's a gift. And if God decides to put it on your heart and you want to give the money back, we leave that between you and the Lord. We're not putting any stipulations on this. We just want to bless you. And that's part of what you guys do when you give, by the way, is you don't see a lot of the situations where we're, we've been able to bless others and keep them going and keep them uh, in shelter and so forth in different situations. In Luke six thirty four through 36, Jesus says, If you lend... To those from uh, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But Jesus says, "But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." Now, let me ask you a question. As a non-Christian, how motivated would you be to keep that particular command? I tell you what, in my BC days, there would be zero motivation. Zero. Because my unholy trinity was about me, myself, and I. And whatever was best for me, that's what I did. Sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, but you know what I'm talking about. But Jesus says, look, you're new people in a new community <clears throat> living by the grace of God for the glory of God. So look at verse 26. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, let's say that you're going to lend him some money and you take his cloak as collateral. Let's say that all he has is his, his winter coat, to put it in modern vernacular. You are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. God says, if you take that thing for collateral and that guy has no blanket or anything, give it back to him. Because on that cold night, you know what he's going to do? He's going to say, old so-and-so's got my cloak for collateral. (laughs) And God says, when he starts praying, guess what? I'm going to hear him. And he's probably going to mention your name. And it will not look good on your spiritual resume. You shall not curse God, 28. Nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, boy, could we say a lot about this. Now, we did a whole lesson on not taking the name of the Lord in vain, right? But how many people? I had a cousin. (laughs) We were playing softball. 
he would hit the ball and somebody would make a catch and he would say, why God? Why did you allow him to catch that line drive? That I hit that beautiful sparkling line drive. It was in the hole and he leaped and he caught it. Why? He would say, yeah, I would start talking to God on the way to first base. And I would say, Frank, God didn't do it to you. You hit the ball to the player. There's a lot of field up there, right? But it was always, why God? How many people on a daily basis curse God? How many people take the name of the God who gave them breath and life and take it down to the level of a four-letter smut word? Do you know that Jesus said that every idle word a man speaks, he will give account for on the day of judgment? Every idle word. Now, as a Christian, guess what? That's not you. Because you've been forgiven of every dumb thing that you've ever said or will say. Amen? That's pretty good. (laughs) That's good news. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. That's a thank you, Jesus, right? Right? In a genuine way. Thank you, Lord. Not, Not just a filler. Not just a, you know. Thank you, Lord. But how many people? Wow. 29. You shall not delay the offering... From your harvest and your vintage, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. This is called giving. By the way, giving is part of our new conduct as believers because God loves a cheerful, remember we mentioned it, giver. And so here it says in verse 29, when you get something from your field, this is the way people would often give because they didn't have paper money like we do today. Although they, there are ancient coins, but often they would just barter with animals and, and harvests and so forth. When you got it, you were not to delay. You were to give it. The first, uh, don't delay, give of your harvest and your vintage. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me as well. They say, well, how do you do that? Exodus thirteen two. sanctify to me every firstborn. The offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both man and beast, it belongs to me, says God. So we're to give it. How do we give it? Well, one time I'd heard, Doc, uh, as I'm telling the story, turn to uh, Numbers 3.13. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 3.13. <clears throat> Dr. Martin said he had a kid in the household. He was getting older. He said... Dad, I'm five. I should be able to decide now whether or not I'm going to go to church. No, I'm just kidding. But he said he had a, <clears throat> I think it was a teenage son. And the teenage son announced one day, uh, I'm not going to church today. And Dr. Martin says, get dressed, you're going to church. So I'm not going to church today. Dr. Martin says, why? Well, because I've decided that it's uh, not for me and I'm not going. And Dr. Martin turned to the son and said, uh, I just want to uh, update you on current events. He said, about 15 years ago, I got on my knees and I consecrated this house to Jesus Christ and all of you children. And this house is God's and this family goes to church. He said, so when are you leaving? So I said, what? what? When are you leaving? Pack your things. Well, the boy had a quick change of heart and he was dressed for church. You see, Dr. Martin, and I think a lot of us 
you know, we have this kind of passion. So wait a minute. You don't understand. I got on my knees at a point in my life and consecrated you and you and you to God. You belong to Him. You're only mine temporarily in, in, in the sense of a steward. I have the ability to pour into your life, but you belong to God ultimately, right? Everything. So I'm going to do my best as a good steward, but I'm not going to delay. Notice Numbers 3.13. Here's what God says. For all the firstborn are mine. Notice this. Numbers 3.13. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel from man to beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Do you know when God decided to sanctify all the firstborn of Israel? On the day that he judged all the firstborn in Egypt. Anybody got any ideas why that might be so? Interesting. What did God do that night in Egypt? What did he do? He passed over the land of Egypt. And what did he do? He judged Egypt, right? And every firstborn of man and beast was judged. But why did he do that? What was, he, what was the ultimate goal of that night? To do what? What did the tenth plague ultimately produce? It brought Israel, what? Out of Egypt. The tenth plague, finally. What did Pharaoh say? Get out. Take your flocks, take your herds. Go, worship this God. And God says, you know, on the night that I saved you, that by that blood that was on your uh, doorpost and lintel, I saved you. Guess what? That night, when I killed the firstborn in judgment of Egypt, of the world, type of the world, guess what I did? I sanctified to myself, I set apart to myself all of your firstborn because they became mine in the sense of I saved them out of Egypt and brought them what? To myself. See, this is a picture... Uh, Emmanuel, you've said this many times in, in discussion and prayer. Exodus is a book about salvation. And this picture is, I saved you. You are now, you belong to me. You're mine. You don't belong to Egypt. And that night I sanctified to myself all the firstborn. Go back to Exodus 22. Just a few more verses here. <clears throat> Verse 30, Exodus twenty-two thirty. 30. You shall do the same with your oxen, with your sheep. It shall be with a mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. Interesting, seven is the number of completion. Eight is the number of new beginnings. Eighth, the eighth day was also the day that what happened for the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision was done on the eighth day. Interesting that in t- to be in the Abrahamic covenant... You circumcised the male child on the eighth day. It was a sign that you were what? Sanctified unto God that in essence you belong to Him. So that eighth day has great significance. And you, 31, shall be holy men to me. Holy, set apart. The uh, Hebrew word is kodesh. The Greek word is hagios or hagiazo. You are to be set apart for me. You are mine. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. A little bit more on our conduct. 
You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Here's the deal. If somebody tells you that I want you to show up at this place and speak ill of this person and make up a story and do you got my back? Sometimes kids get in trouble this way, don't they? They do something really dumb and something bad happens and now they have to come up, they have to concoct a story. They say, you say this and you say that and you say this and don't rat out Johnny, right? And so they come up with this false report and they become a malicious witness and God says, don't bear a false report and don't join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious, which speaks of a cruel or unjust witness. By the way, when Jesus was put on trial, what happened? False witnesses came forward and made false accusation. You shall not follow a multitude, verse 2, chapter 23, Exodus, in doing evil. Remember, bad company corrupts good morals. Don't follow the crowd, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. What if you're under pressure? What if everybody's telling you that you should say this thing? What if the company decides that, and everybody's on board and you're the odd person out? Should you follow the mob mentality? What if everybody at school decides that they're going to graffiti the school and tear down the fence or burn up one of the classrooms? Should you jump on board? Otherwise, you're going to get tied up with duct tape or whatever they would do to you? What should you do? What if your family covers up something? And says, you're not to say anything because you're going to rock the boat. What do you do? Do you go with the flow? God says, no. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Look, God's for the poor, but don't be partial to him just because he's poor. Now, if you meet your enemy's uh, minivan in the parking lot, or ox, (laughs) or his donkey or minivan is wandering away, it's rolling down the hill, you shall surely return it to him. Now, what if your neighbor, you just got in a spat with your neighbor and his minivan's parked next to your house and you live on a hill and all of a sudden you hear, <laughs> things starts creeping down the hill. What should you do? Say, good. All right. Praise the Lord. Down goes the minivan. Woo! Should you throw a party? No. You should try to stop the vehicle. By the way, this means... But, in this particular text that you might have an enemy in this world. You know, the Bible acknowledges that you might have some enemies. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, uh, be careful if everyone speaks well of you. You say, well, how so? Well, here's the deal. We shouldn't have enemies just because we're an obnoxious person. But if you've taken a righteous stand, if someone doesn't like you because of your Christianity... Well, then rejoice, Jesus says. If you get persecuted for the sake of me, rejoice. Because that's what happened to the prophets of old who were faithful to me. So if the minivan's going down the street, jump in and hit the brake. Tell your neighbor. If you see the donkey, verse 5, of one who hates you. By the way, now the Bible acknowledges that there might be somebody out here, here in the world who actually hates you. See, the Bible is real, isn't it? The Bible doesn't paint a fairy tale. It says, you know what? You might have a person who hates you. And what if you see their donkey lying helpless under its load? 
You shall refrain from uh, from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. The idea is you're to help. Even in situations where you don't feel like it and you're saying, good for them. One time, <laughs> my grandmother tells the story. My grandfather was a very hard Italian man. And one day they were in some sort of fight. And so a bottle got broken somehow and my grandfather in his hard, callous ways picked up pieces of the broken bottle and began to chew them, the glass, in front of my grandmother. Because <laughs> he was angry. And as the glass was cutting up his tongue and blood was dripping down the side of his mouth, my grandmother, in a very loving way, said, Good for you! Good for you! Go ahead and bleed! And right? That's not the idea of the text here. You say, Stop, let me get the pieces of glass out of your mouth. This is not a good idea. But anyway... Just a little Italian story there for you. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother. So what kind of family was this, Michael? In his dispute. I have not followed in those footsteps. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous for I will not acquit the guilty. Look, if someone is under a capital charge, you better make sure that it's true. You remember old King Ahab? He had a wife named Jezebel. And Ahab really wanted a field. Uh, it was right next to his house. It was a, it was a little um, vineyard. And he really wanted it. It was the vineyard of Naboth. And so he said, I really want that vineyard. I'm the king. I'm the king. I gotta have it. It's right next to my house, Naboth. Uh, I'll give you a better vineyard than this one if you just give me this one. And I'll even give you a good price for it. Well, Naboth said, no, I'm not going to give you it. It belongs to my ancestors. I'm not giving it to you. Well, the king was very sad. He came in the house. <laughs> Naboth. <laughs> well, Jezebel saw him upset. She said, you're the king. Whatever you say should go. So Jezebel decided to take care of it for the king. You know what she did? She had false witnesses come forward and lie about Naboth. And they took him to the gate of the city and stoned him to death. And guess what happened to Ahab? He got his vineyard. He was so gleeful. Oh, Jezebel, you're such a wonderful spouse. We even can make a reality TV show now. Oh, this is great. And so he got his vineyard. And you know what happened? God sent a message to the king through a prophet. And he said, you know what? If I could paraphrase, you're in I've seen what you've done. There's blood on your hands. What did he do? Justice was perverted by his wife. An innocent man was killed. And this is what the Bible says. I will not acquit you if you do this. And you shall not take a bribe, verse 8, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. Well, you guys know about bribes. Or maybe you don't know a lot about bribes. What we don't know about bribes is probably a lot more than we do know about them. But for those of you who have been around a while and you know how money works and money talks and people who are pulling the purse strings, there's a lot of corruption. From government to everything that you could name and everything in between. Money talks and money corrupts. And the lust of money and the lust for profit has torn asunder many people. 
And you shall not oppress a stranger, verse 9, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for also you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now that you're a Christian, 2 Corinthians 1 talks about comforting others with a comfort with which we've been comforted by God. And what's the application for us tonight? Well, let's say that you run into somebody and they're in a lifestyle that you would say is abominable to God. But let's say that you have an opportunity with them. What should you do? Should you put on the sandwich board, go on the street corner and say, Burn in hell, you terrible sinners! You're out! Right? Should we do that? Should we be like that one Baptist church that shows up to every funeral for a service, uh, man or woman, killed in the war, and they protest at the funeral service of the person? Should we do that? No. We are to be winsome in our culture. We are to understand. We know the feelings of people who have been caught in our sinful lifestyles, don't we? And we have to learn to be patient with people. I've talked to Brenda many times about this. So you know what? We get a certain perspective after we've been walking with the Lord for some time. And we forget that one at one time in our walk, we were way back here and we had very... Uh, similar struggles to a lot of people that we now minister to. And if we get on a place where we're on our high horse and we think, well, you know, well, we don't struggle with that. How could this person be? And we don't have any compassion. Then we've forgotten from where we've come from. Because it wasn't that long ago, that many years ago, when that person that I'm talking to was me. So I've, I've had people in my office and they've shared things with me and I've said to them, you know what? You know what you just described? That was me. <laughs> That's what I used to do. <clears throat> and people are a little bit thrown off by that. But you're the pastor. Weren't you born with a Bible and a <laughs> rolling pulpit? No. As a matter of fact, if you interviewed a group of my friends from about 20 years ago, maybe a little better than 20 years ago, some of them would say, What? Michael Lance is a pastor? But I know the feelings. I was at a party. This is my parting shot for you. With a group of people who we used to run with and do some, some dumb things and ran into a man who stayed in that fast paced lifestyle. And I had become a pastor. And so we're at the party and you know, visiting some old friends and they were doing what they've always done over the years and I looked at this man. I'll tell you what, it was one of these moments I will never forget. And I looked at the effects of that lifestyle on his physical appearance, his teeth, his features, his eyes. And I thought to myself, wow, that could have been me had the Lord not delivered me from that lifestyle. Tell you what, I was headed for destruction, guys. And that's that's what I think God's saying here. Look, when you run into somebody, be careful that you're not this high and lofty, I've arrived Christian, and you forget that you were back there. Remember when the whip was hitting you? Remember that? That's why I brought that 10th plague in, to bring you to myself. I did that. You didn't do it. As a matter of fact, when you were in the wilderness, you were whining about where the water was. I did that too. 
Then you start to count your blessings one by one to see what the Lord has done. And you go, wow, when I'm out there witnessing, I got to witness differently to every person. Some people, it's going to be all about compassion. And other people, it might be about exhortation. But I need tremendous wisdom, lest I forget where I've come from. On May 28, 1972, the Duke of Windsor, the uncrowned King Edward VIII, died in Paris. On the same evening, a television program recounted the main events of his life. Viewers watched film footage in which the Duke answered questions about his upbringing, his brief reign, and his eventual abdication. Recalling his boyhood as Prince of Wales, he said, My father, which was King George V, was a strict disciplinarian. Sometimes when I had done something wrong, he would admonish me saying, My dear boy, you must always remember who you are. It is my conviction, says this writer, that our Heavenly Father says the same to us every day. My dear child, you must always remember who you are. The greatest key to your victory is knowing who you are and to whom you belong. Final story. <laughs> I told you there was going to be a final one. One night, a pastor was at a board meeting. A telephone call comes into the church office. This is not a personal story, by the way. Your son's in prison. He's been arrested. So the group of the elders drive down to the police station and take the boy out of the jail cell. But the, the dad was a little bit behind talking to one of the elders, and a couple of the elders grabbed the young man and said, What are you doing here? Don't you know who your dad is? Don't you know who you are? And they admonished the boy. And he realized in that moment, You know what? I'm, I'm representing my dad and the church, but more than all of that, I represent my father who's in heaven. Let's carry the family name well. Amen? You know, a lot of us dads, we try to say, you're a, you're a Lancer. You know, you've got this name and this means this and this is your culture and this is your upbringing and this is who you are and that's great. But don't forget who you are in Jesus. See, knowing who you are will help you to walk and live the way you should. And when you have little hiccups, and we all will, right? Because we're not perfect, <laughs> but we want to be consistent. We're not sinless, but we want to sin less. Then we'll catch ourselves. Then we'll say, oh God, before I open my mouth on this one, <laughs> put a guard, you know. Say, oh Lord, before I, uh, you know, get involved in this, before I go to this place, before I uh, revisit this thing, help me, Lord. Help me to remember who I am, who I belong to, what I was saved from, and where I'm headed, and that there's great benefit and reward to doing the right thing for the glory of God. Amen? Shall we pray? Lord God, uh, we are so grateful for your great salvation, for your love for us, for your patience with us, O oh God. And we know that these uh, particular uh, exhortations in the book of Exodus, we can relate so many of them to the New Testament, Lord. These are exhortations to act in a way uh, conducive with who we are. We are Christians. 
We have been saved by Jesus Christ. You live in us, O God. And we are your ambassadors as though you were pleading through us for men and women to be reconciled to God. You did that by making him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so in gratitude, Lord, and with a desire to worship you, and because it is our reasonable service in view of your awesome and great mercy, let us live a holy and pleasing life, Lord. Let us find the great joy in that, the joy in purity, the joy in a clear conscience, the joy in serving the King of kings and Lord of lords, the joy in leading someone to Jesus Christ, an eternal decision, the joy in teaching and ministering to others and lifting up some of the heavy burdens that others have and being a blessing to others. What a beautiful thing that you've given to us, Lord. What a great community we are a part of. And now, Lord, we want to do what we do by your power, by your grace, and for your glory. And we want to tell the story of your glory, Lord, that once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was lost, but now I'm found. We want to do it unto the least of these, your brethren, and do it for you, because you, Lord, did it for us. Thank you so much. We love you. We worship you, and we ask that you'll bless your precious saints. In Jesus' name, amen.